Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I recently was honored to testify in front of a subcommittee of a committee of the House of Representatives, which sounds much less impressive than what I put on my resume, which is that I testified in front of Congress. It was a good, it was a good time. Committee, committee section. Yeah. 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 It's, it's committees within, no, I mean, it was a, it was, it was an interesting hearing. It was about reimagining policing. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of the substance of the hearing was the, the, the majority, the democratic majority at the time sort of wanted to put front and center democratic figures who were more, more favorable towards law enforcement than perhaps certain elements of the democratic party had been over the past couple of years. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting sort of, it was interesting as a public backtracking almost from the, from the Democratic majority of saying, we really are not in favor of defunding the police. We really are not excited about dramatically curtailing the police's role in American civil society. And it got me thinking about, you know, this phenomenon of ideological capture, the way in which this sort of radical idea took hold of us for, or took hold of our society for a few months in the summer of 2020, which I guess is naturally related to what we're talking about this week. Aaron, why don't you tell our listeners what we're interested in this week? So today we are going to be talking with Wesley Yang. Wesley, I would say, is the preeminent theorist of what we often call wokeness and what he has, I think, very aptly dubbed the successor ideology. You know, on the show, we keep coming back to a sort of a bundle of ideas and attitudes that have been propagated by elite progressives and spread throughout all of America's major institutions. And Wesley is a writer who has both documented this kind of ideological takeover in some detail and also, I think, written some fairly compelling anatomies of this ideology's constitutive elements. So that's broadly what we're going to talk about. Charles, do you have anything to add? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like we, we touch on this theme with some frequency. We're interested in, you know, wokeness and the, the propagation of what total scientist Zach Goldberg has called the, the, the great awakening, this sort of dramatic left shift in political leanings among highly educated white liberals over the past decade. And, you know, so that, that, that sort of propagates through all of our conversations. We wanted to bring Wes on because he's a guy, as you said, who, who's thought a lot about this and sort of theorized it in ways that are unique relative to, I think, a lot of the, the other discourse, a lot of the conversation out there. You know, part of, part of what's interesting to me, sort of thinking about how we frame this conversation, I, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of very cautious. I, I like to write wokeness in quotation marks because I think it's a, it's a far more inchoate and contested set of ideas than critics on my side of the aisle often make it out to be. Um, what I like about Wes's work is that he's interested in how individual ideas take hold, become accepted or commonplace, and get worked out in their most radical form, not as like a deliberate plot, but as a natural social process. So I think, you know, what part of what I want to get at today is sort of how he thinks this, uh, this cultural transformation has taken place, how it sort of marched through the institutions, but what the mechanics and mechanisms are of that process of the spread of an ideology. Right. And I would just add before we get to Wes that Wes has done a good job of exploring how sort of the civil rights coalition has it gradually expanded and kind of started to bleed into what you might call the woke coalition. And one thing that I hope we can explore today is how there are certain, I think, 
bureaucratic and even economic incentives sort of built into a lot of civil rights bureaucracy and its various corporate offshoots that kind of made this particular ideology very attractive to a certain class of bureaucrats. Obviously, there's an autonomous role for ideas, but I think what we also want to get at in this conversation is what sort of institutional and structural factors made the ideas take hold. Our, our, our guest today, as we said, is Wesley Yang. He's an author and uh, social commentator. Wes, welcome to the program. I guess I just want to sort of start with, you know, we like to start with sort of a, a, a challenge to our guests to basically be like, why should we care about everything that you have to say? And I think in this case, you know, there's, there's been a sort of tacit recognition on the political left of this awakening phenomenon, but often... Even even among those who sort of see its worst successes, they identify this as basically sort of a generic belief in in progress, a shift towards a more inclusive and accepting society. What what do you sort of say to those who sort of acknowledge that there's been a there's been a, an attitudinal shift on the left, but it's nothing more than reflection of a more diverse and a more inclusive and a more radically accepting society? And these are all things to be celebrated. Well, you know, another term experimenting for the successor ideology would be a kind of evangelical progressivism. And, it, you know, it shares many of the, uh, the aspects of other forms of evangelism in the sense that it, it is, it proceeds from an absolutist mentality and it moves toward totalizing critiques of society that end up moving inexorably toward the adoption. We, we hear this recrudescence of the language of abolition. And, and of course, the term abolition is, is a reference to, you know, a prior historical movement that has a lot of well-merited uh, historical and moral prestige. And so it's an attempt to tap into the historical and moral prestige of the movement that resulted in that brought about, right, the end of slavery in the United States and, and throughout the, the Western world and, and the world controlled by the West. And, but, but sort of borrowing that moral prestige and deploying it on behalf of a set of totalizing critiques of various American institutions and that calls for their abolition. And so we have to think about who were the abolitionists and, and what sets them apart. They were a moral vanguard right, that emerged in the, you know, in the late 17th century, in the late 18th century, and a and hundred years later had affected the, the, the total abolition of a great moral evil that they sort of regarded as a moral emergency in our midst that was seen by most people as just an ordinary part of life, that was not seen as an institution that would be subject to its total abolition. And so you had these people that had a far-seeing moral vision alerting the rest of society to a great moral evil in their midst to which the rest of society was complacent. And so it's the replication of not just that rhetoric, but that mindset applied to the measurable, racially disparate, right, uh, structure of a meritocratic society that calls for then not the abolition of the the buying and selling of of uh, you know of, of human beings uh, into and out of bondage, but the abolition of disparate outcomes on tests, the abolition of the existence of police, the the abolition of the existence of prisons, the abolition of uh, 
normative, you know, normative uh, standards of sexual conduct, of uh, normativity in general, as it is enforced through institutions of the state, so that we so that we actually maintain a distinction between the citizen and the non-citizen that actually has legal force and that means something. Uh, and and so you know what 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 is called for in this in this new ideology seized by an abolitionist sensibility and an evangelizing uh, spirit of seeing the world as locked in a struggle between good and evil is a call for the end of the American nation state for the end of its for the end of its existence because to will a border is to will the means to enforce that border right and so we speak of a kind of among a specific class of people within a particular discursive community that happens to have disproportionate power over our discourse and over the way the elites who uh, are governing and chattering classes conceive of politics. There was an, an effort to say that there was something morally outrageous about the existence of borders and border control in much the same way that the abolitionists who were far-sighted visionaries in the 18th century said there was something morally odious about human bondage. So we have a new group of people who are making this kind of argument that, that it is morally odious that we make a distinction between citizens and non-citizens. And what instruments do they have on, you know, on their behalf to, to, to carry this forward, right? There's the, there's, the, there's the institution of international law, which is controlled by you know, a, you know, a, a very small priesthood of intellectual elites who simply by virtue of a scholarships, uh, you know, the scholarship they write in, in journals and then persuade jurors, judges, international lawyers, and eventually legislators to vastly expand the scope of asylum, right? And this is something that, that, that can be done without any reference to the electoral process, to, to politics. So, so, so the successor ideology is a kind of elite politics that manipulates, uh, uh, you know, moralizing language and, and moral categories to advance a politics of far-sighted vanguardism through various quotidian means that are at the disposal of progressives. And so, you know, back in 2000, 2013, I remember reading a blog post by Jonathan Turley, sort of guffawing at the fact that a group of student life administrators at the University of Maryland had declared that the new proper term to refer to what was once known as an illegal alien was not just an undocumented resident, but a an undocumented uh, citizen, right? And, and yeah. of course, you know, th this is a kind of paradoxical construction, but it's one that has a purpose and a moral force behind it. And of course, you know, earlier this year, San Francisco voted to give voting rights to undocumented citizens. New York City just voted York to City give just voting rights well. to undocumented citizens. So it's a, it's it's the process of international right. law imposed domestically but, because international law is it doesn't have any actual real force to it, but it has so, the force so, of creating a consensus, the power of moral suasion from which real interventions in the world can then flow. As the longest running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, 
The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of Institutionalized. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use offer code THINK. I love The Spectator because it is committed to the quality of its reasoning and writing, not to a particular political party. Amazing contributors, including Christopher Buckley, Julie Bindel, Christopher Caldwell, Lionel Schraver, Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Slavo Zizek, Roger Scruton, and Rod Little. The Spectator is less political party, more cocktail party. Whether you lean left or right, you're guaranteed to be entertained from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three free months of The Spectator. Plus get your free Spectator hat when you subscribe today at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code THINK at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com slash special offer and offer code THINK. So, so Wesley, you said something earlier I want to just hone in on, which is that this all is motivated by measurable and observable disparities between groups. That's yeah. obviously a key component of this. To what extent do you think that that is merely a function of the fact that the differences are visible and thus intolerable because we collect data on these disparities? And to what extent do you think it's sort of a function of America's moral history of slavery and kind of and kind of animated by this like deeper moral narrative or or and or how are they maybe connected? Because it, se- it seems like there's two two things going on here. Well, so that, you know, there is the there is this premise, right, that is at the core of the successor ideology that, you know, where there are disparities. <laughs> There you find racism, right? And 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 that was codified. Um, and the reason he rose to such prominence as the sort of mm-hmm. prophet of the movement, you know, by by Ibram X. Kendi, where mm-hmm. he where he sort of where he sort of arrived at that dogmatic, totalizing conclusion. And of course, you know, one merely only needs to be glancingly familiar with with the you know empirical work of of Thomas Sowell. One doesn't have to be, you know, one doesn't have to buy his whole program to recognize that disparities between groups are actually a function of what constitutes groups as groups, <laughs> right? Like groups are groups by virtue of the fact that they have different priorities in what they value mm-hmm. and in what they choose to do. And so, you know, there's a great photo that went viral. I think it was actually an older photo, but it was a photo of the U.S. Math Olympiad team, uh, you know, <laughs> announcing the fact that the U.S. Math Olympiad team had, after many years of dominance by China, had, had actually brought the title home to the United States. And of course, the photo showed, you know, four, you know, Chinese American or East Asian males. I think there was one white guy in the picture as well. And, and, and of course, that photo is a demonstration of what it means for diversity to be our strength, right? That photo is an indication of what a country that is able to skim the cream, right, of, of uh, the peoples of the world and therefore become a melting pot, you know, sort of bringing together, you know, the, 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 the world's diversity, the people who, by virtue of their group membership, right, 
have decided to optimize themselves along a range of different outcomes produces this racially disparate outcome, right? That is in fact a benign one, right? But of course, under the strictures of the Kendiest credo, it is a, you know, it, it is an inherently, you know, an illegitimate one that can only be explained by, among other things, intense anti-white racism, because white people make up 60% of the uh, population or more, and yet are less than 20% of those, you know, represented on the, uh, on the math Olympiad team. And so, you know, America has this problem where there are, you know, large disparities in things like the wealth that has accumulated over the generations as a result of prior discriminatory state policy, you know, Jim Crow, not just slavery, that, you know, that such that, you know, there, there was a racially, you know, there was a racial group in this country that was denied many of the fruits of the period of America's great expansion that, you know, that, that, that took a range of European immigrants and, and brought them into the middle class, right? And so we have that legacy that we have to deal with. And that legacy is distinct from, right, the, the claim that wherever there are disparities, right. there we have racism. Well, and I want to maybe, maybe proffer uh, etiology for that, for that claim. That is an explanation for, for why that claim has taken hold. And that is, you know, you have a lot of civil rights bureaucracies and then a lot of corporate bureaucracies that are charged in various ways with combating discrimination. And the most straightforward thing a bureaucracy can look at, of course, just is outcomes, right? You know, looking into what is in someone's heart and whether they really meant to be racist, that, you know, that's not something that a huge bureaucratic organization can really do, but looking at the relative representation of Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Whites, they can do that and they can either infer discrimination from that or they can just say that is discrimination. Uh, do you think that that is a part of what's going on here? And if so, what are the implications for how there's, to combat the successor? Right. It's just like there's a just, datification issue. It's what is legible. Yeah, there's, 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 yeah. No, go ahead. No, yeah. exactly. Legibility. Okay, so it's a matter of what is legible to the state and and the the difficulty of divining intents. Now, the truth is that up until now, it wasn't that easy to prevail in a discrimination claim, despite the fact that we do have a disparate income, uh, disparate outcome. Act. You know, we have a jurisprudence around that, but you, you can easily exaggerate how easy it is to prevail on those claims. Sure. It, there is a movement now, A, on the one hand, you know, to try to, to try to influence the courts to make it much easier, uh, although the courts have been standing firm on this. But on the other hand, to simply generate an elite consensus that encompasses all of the decision makers in a position to decide in corporate America to uh, ignore what the law is. And, and, and we see that to be the case. You know, California has a law, you know, sort of mandating racial representation or LGBTQ representation on every corporate board. And, you know, the NASDAQ has introduced, uh, you know, similar, have, has introduced similar requirements. And this then becomes simply a matter of corporate compliance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, it becomes a matter for which there is a whole apparatus of 
lawyers and consultants and so on, whose job is simply to, uh, you know, take these legible claims and uh, translate them into an action plan and, and, and to bring them about. Few of these things are, you know, would survive constitutional challenge. Just the issue is in, in a world where the elite consensus has become so strong and has become so, you know, rigidly policed that to challenge it comes with a form of, is to court social death and professional death, who is going to volunteer themselves to be mm -hmm. litigant whose job is to bring this thing back into what is pretty much undisputed as what the law has always said, right? And so, and so the idea is, is that you create this zone of exception that is so broad and so large that for the most part it goes on it goes on undeterred you know i mean i mean the 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 james damore discrimination suit you know includes emails from you know senior officials at youtube saying hey we, you know we base we have a moratorium on white and asian male hires until we meet a quota you know this is conduct that is clearly prohibited, right, by court doctrine on uh, this kind of thing, but they're doing it, they're doing it in the open, and despite the existence of this lawsuit, there was not the will to push it through to a resolution where a court was going to rule on it. And so the idea is, is that you keep this elite consensus operative until such time as we have transformed the makeup of the federal judiciary such that they're going to also be willing to, you know, take us on a path toward shifting the doctrine and the understanding of the law to match this newly consensus. This is a work of a couple of decades or, or maybe even a couple of generations, but it seems pretty clear through what people feel empowered to do today that the consensus exists. Yeah. So let me, let me ask a related question to that because you're sort of talking about the, the the plain text of the law to take, to take the example of of discrimination in business plain text of the law says that quotas like the Google quota to which you're alluding in the the case of James Damore was fired from Google for saying unpopular things on well it's saying unpopular things on an email message board it's a matter of dispute what exactly happened there but but you know the that that is that that is out of step with what the people in actual positions of power wish the law were to say and so you know what what those people say uh, is what rules I want to ask about sort of how those ideas propagate through elite circles. So you talked about this, uh, this sort of history, this historical moment where the rhetorical turn from five, ten years ago was that no person is illegal. We can't say illegal immigrant because no person is illegal. That's a sort of very intuitive. Like, sure, I agree. You can't make human beings illegal, whatever that means. That sounds that sounds nice and ethical. And that there's a there's a natural working out of this uncontroversial premise to a very radical conclusion, which is that illegal aliens, resident cities are now being permitted to vote in municipal elections because the progressive principles of the people who are leading these cities. So like that, you know, that's a microcosm of, I think the thing that people find very scary about the, the wokeness phenomena, which is like seemingly reasonable people going to crazy, reaching crazy conclusions. Uh, can you talk about how you think about how those ideas propagate and spread among people in positions of power? What is the process by when, when I say going crazy, what's happening there? How do you think about well, that? Well, I mean, it's, it's evolutionary mimetics, right? It's like you have these ideas and, and they're put into circulation. First, they are dreamed up 
by academe by professors in academe then they are then then they're sort of entrenched within the language of the successor coalition the non the progressive nonprofits who are a part of the democratic party coalition and so they 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 form its rhetoric they form its vision of the world and they they are and the foot soldiers of this are you know recent college graduates who have been saturated in 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 an ideology and in an ideology that is grounded in you know a premise of you know i call it the unity of oppression right it's grounded in this premise that that the uh, that we live in eurocentric <laughs> cis hetero patriarchy and of course that is a synthetic construction that represents you know it used to be it used to be hetero patriarchy then it became hetero patriarchy to add the new social movement of the you know of gay and lesbian inclusion and then and then cis was tacked onto it to to add you know to sort of make an oppressor class out of the you know the 99.5 or more you know percent of the of the of the country who identify right whose gender identity coincides with their genitals and with and and with their and with their chromosomal biological sex right like that was that was a term that was invented in the mid you know 2000s by some you know second tier gender studies college person right out there at some state university you know seeking to differentiate itself by playing host to this kind of scholarship they dreamed up the thing there's now uh there's now a pipeline there's a a messaging pipeline through which that term gets injected into um mainstream discussion then it comes out in the tweets of Elizabeth Warren and then dictionary.com right like uh, takes this term that was manufactured by somebody on a message board in 2003 demisexual being the example of this you know demisexual referring to somebody who feels they need to have an emotional connection or bond to somebody before they can enter into sex with them yeah we, we can pinpoint the emergence of this term to uh, you know i don't know if it was a reddit message board or a live journal in 2005 and and from you know between 2005 and 2020 when it appeared on webmd.com as a as a form of queerness. Yeah. No, right? it, it seems like so, it seems like the the thing that you're describing there is a great example of how this is like not obviously deliberately or it's, it's not obviously deliberate. Like some dudes on Tumblr said we're going to come up with a new special label for having to be attracted to somebody before I I want to have sex with them and then that sort of propagated in a like it you you have been describing this as sort of a vanguardist phenomenon like you know powerful people are trying to direct the discourse through abolition and it seems like that specific example is a case of just like people going along to get along with some crazy ideas that some teenagers came up with well, on the internet 10 years ago how do you square well, those well uh, they they are complementary <laughs> they they work together and so social media you know, as I used to say before it was a consummated will to power, you know, cancel culture is an expression of an as yet unconsummated will to power. It is a 
It is of the broader activist milieu and the hive mind that it's able to generate through various meme plexes that start through, you know, sort of unregulated, you know, sort of spontaneous online discussion that is in turn informed by academic theory, which is, you know, realistically not any more grounded in any reality other than the fact that, you know, they have certain certification powers by virtue of the fact that they exist within an academic setting and they have journals that they've created for themselves and are able to launder their ideas through a system of credentialing. So they have a certain privileged perspective, but like, you know, the overall memeplex is one that is co-created, right, by, 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 you know, 30 follower randos on Twitter and, and then, and then to Arthur Chu <laughs> and then to, you know, larger influencers in the system to Noah Berlatsky, right? And then from Noah Berlatsky to Elizabeth Warren's staff. And from Elizabeth Warren's staff to the staff of WebMD, dictionary.com. And then it's finally written into the goddamn laws of the House of Representatives, right? Where suddenly, you know, it it is controversial to refer to, you know, the, the, the person who carried a child to term and continues to raise them as a mother, right? Like, like we have to, and, and so like, and so what does that represent? This is what I call the vertically integrated messaging apparatus. It includes, right, like all of these unpaid ideological entrepreneurs seeking just a little piece of mind share and a bigger following on, on social media. And then there's another step of larger influencers. And then there's the place where the influencers and the discourse interface with the 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 class of staffers of progressive nonprofits and then who in turn influence the staffers of of a congressional offices who then in turn write sure. those notions into law well well so 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 i think here's maybe another way of, of getting at this so so you tweeted recently that the great awakening happened because quote determined activists kept pushing an ideological agenda for 3 decades and drove out those who would constrain them that's it and I think maybe the question, part of what me and Charles are getting at is, you know, haven't activists tried to do this before and failed? You know, you mentioned mimetic selection. Perhaps a, a better way to phrase this is you've essentially just described the process of mimetic evolution. What we're asking about are the selective pressures that, you know, caused this particular mimetic evolution and indeed this particular sort of messaging apparatus and pipeline to win out. Obviously, there is a role for human agency in just constructing it. I mean, I guess sort of the question is, like, it why wins out, this constructed rather than something else? It wins out through negative partisanship, right? And so just to take, like, a very recent example, you know, J.K. Rowling... Can you, can you uh, define that real fast just for the audience? Negative partisanship negative is this process by which... You know, once the baddies enter the room, right, uh, once Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson oppose or support something that sends a signal to the right thinking people of the world that that is something that they have to rally around and support or, or reject. And, 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 and so, you know, you, you see this process. There's a very recent example of it where, you know, J.K. Rowling uh, commented on a news story in which, uh, you know, so there, there's a transgender woman, uh, right, who is accused of 
raping a woman with her female penis, right? And and so and there was a lot of concern about the about not misgendering the rapist <laughs> who committed who, who who penetrated someone against their will <laughs> according to according to the charge with a penis, right? And so J.K. Rowling, you know, did a tweet suggesting that this is an Orwellian development, right? And and immediately Seth Abramson did like a you know you know noted resistance tweeter, who is who's now the number one most followed Substacker on on culture, you know he did like a hundred tweets like railing against turfs and so on and so forth, and then Jordan Peterson you know tweeted in defense of. J.K. Rowling, and so when that happens, that then shows that not misgendering a rapist, right, is like a, of a paramount moral importance, and then and then so you have this whole pipeline of people like Seth Abramson, and then eventually we'll get one of these celebrities, Seth Rogen or whoever, is going to pile on to this like bigots misgendering men who rape with penis or women who rape with penises. And and then Paul Krugman weighs in, and suddenly, right, like because of the great moral emergency of the Trump years and literal fascism that is at our door, unless we join ourselves into this, you know, coalition of the marginal and oppressed, it it, it then becomes the position of the party as a whole. I remember this moment when, when Trump, you know, he issued an executive order saying, you know, we're not gonna, you you know, we're not gonna let transgender people be in the military. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi then had to go on and say, you know, this undermines our security, right? So like this return to the status quo ante of the Obama years in which, or, or of the Obama years until I guess around 2013 or so, where it was not important to recognize and include, you know, cross-gendered people, you know, within the military, Trump returned to that status quo ante because because Obama made that change at the very end of his term, the return to the status quo five years later, it has to be, it has to compromise our national security, right? That's the claim that that that, that uh, Pelosi made. It's not a true claim. It cannot be a true claim. It is an obvious falsehood. And yet by stipulation, because of, because Trump did it, right? Like suddenly this this new thing becomes a part of the progressive belief system and the prior belief gets memory hold and it, it turns out to be the case that like the the great civil rights movement of our time you know we, we you know we, we got back into power we we averted a trans genocide right like all of this hyperbolic rhetoric then becomes grandfathered in to the position not just of a political party, but all the affiliated media institutions that march in lockstep with that political party, right. thus, comp you know, comprising the vertically integrated messaging apparatus. And so this is the so, process we've seen happen time and time again. And that's how the group polarization happens, because right. we're all locked into this single kind of this one virtual agon that serves as a, yeah, I'm referring here to Twitter, right, that serves as the kind of coordinating device for all of media and all of the progressive consensus and then it is and then there it it, it gets it gets exposed to these 
stimuli from Ben Shapiro and, and Jordan Peterson and, and, you know, Tucker Carlson and other hated figures of the, you know, the neo, you know, the neo-fascist right who then say, well, you know, maybe the paramount concern when someone rapes another person with their penis is not misgendering the perpetrator, right? They, they say something like that. And then, and then, of course, you know, we now know what fascism is. We now know, and, and, the, and the movement then takes this idea that was manufactured, you know, that was still a joke in 2017, the female penis, and, and they've suddenly, through this process of group polarization, made it so that all decent people believe in the female penis. The fact that so, we even refer to this term, so, right? Without, you know, I mean, we are laughing, but, you know, the fact that this is even a term that one can when, speak when, so, in a political so, context. On the topic of, on the topic of, of polarization, yeah, this may be a good thing to sort of wrap up. Yeah. yeah. So, so one thing that's sort of uh, thrown a wrench in conventional narratives of polarization is the Hispanic swing towards the GOP. And the fact that they're now almost, according to some polls, Hispanics seem to be polarized between the left and the right just as much as white people are, which is which is astonishing, especially considering what the messaging on this was like just a few years ago. You've written and talked about how the interests of immigrants, especially though not exclusively Hispanic and Asian immigrants, often align neither with the MAGA agenda or the woke agenda, successor ideology, what have you, and yet those do seem to be the main options on offer right now, precisely because of this negative partisanship you just identified. Do you see a world in which these respective projects collapse under the weight of America's changing demographics? Or do you think that this kind of bureaucratic, you know, institutional structure and messaging apparatus is resilient enough to kind of give demographics or destiny a run for its money? It's, it's a tough one. I think it's an extremely salutary development that, that Hispanics, you know, are, are at least able to manifest in the form of, an, you know, what their preferences are. <laughs> and, and, you know, in, in certain cases, you know, willing to support an alternative to an equity agenda, right, that is clearly contrary to their own interests, right? And so the figure that really matters is that the group who's the racial group, right, who's the sort of measurable racial collective whose income rose the fastest between the years 2014 and 2019 were Hispanic Americans, right, and, and followed by Asian Americans. And of course, Hispanics were at a lower base, but their growth was more rapid. And so the promise of, you know, the American dream is, is in fact, the numbers tell us, <laughs> being fulfilled by this group of people, and that many of those years between 2014 and 2019 were spent under who was a president during that time, right? Like the 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 man who came to power, you know, sort of, you know, saying, right, you know, these these monstrous slurs about them being rapists and so on, or some of the people who crossed the border, um, that, that, you know, that was seen as this awful recrudescence of American racism. But, but in fact, between the years 2016 and, and 2020, there was a racial depolarizing process, right? Where, where sort of his, his Hispanic numbers moved 
And he picked up votes with other constituencies as well, including black Americans, because each of these group as groups, as it turned out, right, saw the lowest unemployment that they had ever seen in the country's history. I believe that was his term and that was the correct one. And, and they also saw wage gains that were for really the first time in recent American history, disproportionately slated toward the bottom of the income range. Like these things happened. I, I don't know to what extent anything that he did, that Donald Trump did is responsible for these outcomes. But, but certainly the, the movement toward, you know, a regime that explicitly, you know, limits opportunity or distributes it on the basis of identity is not one that either of that that either of the groups who represent the most economically dynamic groups which happen to be in America which happen to be its non-black non-white diversity the immigrant groups that arrived after 1965 started arriving in large numbers in the 1980s and have for the most part saw the things that previous cohorts of immigrants you know sought in America and they sought it in the America they entered. <laughs> and, and they have an interest in the preservation of that America, not in moving toward a radically different America that, that, uh, that, that is radically more redistributionary and radically more regulatory and so on. And so that's just a, that's just a reality of what their actual interests are. And, then, and, and so there is then the question of, well, how are we going to frame this development? And of course, what the progressives have done is they have coined terms such as multiracial whiteness. And of course, in a brilliant new formulation by, by a, a new tweeter, right? The, uh, the assistant professor, Dr. William Horn, who, who is, uh, is fighting hard to wrest the, the mantle of, of, of most deranged right? Of most arranged tweeter from Jason Stanley, right? White backlashers of color, right? And so, and so he has a great tweet where he's like, just because the white backlashers of color are multiracial does not mean it's not a white backlash. And so you can frame it that way. It looks like they are going to go with that. And my sense is that framing is only going to hasten the event Right. That, and, and here we have an example of a kind of negative partisanship that should redound to the advantage. Right. Like, oh, the forces of those who, you know, who, who stand in opposition to the successor ideology. This said, OK, this said. Successor ideology is, is optimized for a non-electoral politics. Right. So, so it is an entity whose purpose is to. Take and keep control through moral suasion through moral and emotional blackmail through manipulation of you know disciplinary bureaucracies such as the title nine bureaucracy and the, and the, the the title six bureaucracy which we may well see emerging under the rule of Catherine uh, layman and 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 certainly we see plenty of indications of a will to expand such a bureaucracy throughout the private sector as well so i'm definitely not one of these people who think oh you know glenn Youngkin won you know, like the wokeness is almost over. This is just manifestly not true. You know, it, it, in a lot of your reporting here, and you're showing how we're it we're at a moment where there's a vast ramping up and rolling out of new 
ever more far-reaching authorities and regulatory structures because the simple fact that there now is a there, there now is a professional constituency on its behalf. There's a group of people whose livings, livelihood, whose ambitions, whose future rests upon the continued existence of violent oppression that it is their job to be paid $85,000 a year to fight. And, and so whenever progress is made, a, a, a new, more expansive construction of violent oppression and we saw this happen with the microaggression thing. The nanoaggression is next, right? Like there's always another 2.0 version of this. And, and, and so, and here's, here's where the kind of collaboration between personality disordered figures on Twitter, right? And the apparatus, we see it at work because you have all these people generating crowdsourcing new ways to be injured, new ways to decry their marginalization, new ways to construe themselves as being the victims of violent oppression, which then the larger system with its various evolutionary stimulating tendencies has at its disposal can then pick and choose the ones to impose on others. And given the ones that we've already accepted, right, like the existence of a diamorphic sexual, right? Like the existence of biology, like we have already managed to get most right pe thinking people to regard it as, you, you know, the mark of a troglodyte, right? To insist upon this. Mm -hmm. uh, who, who would have agreed with this just a few years ago? But it happened. They made it real. They have the ability to make it real. And so if they can make that real, what can they not make real? And, and so you know, we're we're going to see the continual manufacture of these novelties. And sorry, sorry to cut you off, but we're running low on time. Okay, um, but I'll 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 I'll. I mean, I think I I think that gives us a place to sort of um, conclude, uh, which is to say, I mean, you know, I think I started the conversation saying I'm interested in the extent to which this is deliberate versus not. I think you made a relatively strong case that a lot of this is, at least in some senses, deliberate. At least in some senses, driven by. Um, uh, conscious action rather than sort of social forces. Uh, and, you know, I find, I find persuasive this idea of a, a lot of it is about, is about self-interest is about collective self-interest in the construction of, uh, the construction of, you know, new, new ways for people to accrue interest, to accrue social value to themselves, to accrue benefits to themselves. Um, I think that's an important discursive mechanism. I wish we'd, I wish we'd had time to sort of talk more about, uh, the, the process by which that propagates, but that might be a later conversation. Aaron, did you have? Well, I, I would, yeah, I would say two things. So just in quickly, one, I think the fact that it is deliberate um, and concerted does not necessarily mean that it's not also a function of various economic incentives and technological things. And I, you know, I think it, we should, broadly speaking, my, my takeaway from this is that we, we should have a compatibilist account of wokeness that does not really, uh, exclude either either of these kinds of explanations I, I guess the other point i would make is you know wesley what you're very good at doing is is getting across how systemic this all is and how how it, it's not just in one institution it's in all of them um you you started by saying that that characteristic of the successor ideology is this attempt to almost apply uh international law and hell, even counterterrorism tactics um, at home to a kind of recalcitrant 
populace through the levers of uh, non-electoral power. The thing is, if we accept your diagnosis of, of the systemic character of wokeness, it seems like we are talking about a kind of regime and opposition to wokeness becomes a kind of regime change project in a sense, uh, which is precisely what wokeness already kind of is at home. And, and I, I think that that uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing thing but it's it is something to be careful of because i think we're all you know look everyone on this call we don't like this ideology we think it's bad we think it's gonna have real human costs so we all want to get rid of it it is worth i think just noting that because it's so deeply entrenched getting rid of it is going to be difficult and there may be effective ways of getting rid of it that are so revolutionary that they are themselves dangerous. Um, and that is, I think, a good thing to just be aware of, right? That that yeah. revolution, revolution in the service of a good cause can still be really bad. Yeah, uh, making the diagnosis uh, of, of uh, its nature and its entrenched institutional nature um, you know, I, I, I'm, I am not a theorist of regime change, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I don't advocate it. Um, and you know, I have, I have a lot of ambivalence about it, but you know, my, I, which is why I confine my role to that of a diagnostician and to say, if we have to know what it is and we have to not think, <laughs> uh, and, and if we were to think about, if we were to pose the question, which I have not done in print at some point, I will. You know, like, well, what would it actually mean to prevail against this, right? Uh, the, the answer to that question, you know, may well be a lot of things that I personally, uh, A, could not stomach, and B, would, would prefer, <laughs> prefer the existing regime, which I find to be odious, to what it would take to dislodge it. So, you know, uh, so yeah. your, your caveat is well taken, um, but that doesn't change the underlying diagnosis of what right. I think the actual thing is. Right. Sure. Sure. I just think it is that we, we, yeah. we, we happen to create a system of knowledge and a system of law that ended up being susceptible to being parasitized in this way and, and, and parasitized in a way where on the one hand, it's kind of it's been parasitized, and on the other hand, it's just doing what it was designed to do. Do on the other hand, and so it's 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 one of those things where how do you talk about this thing? And and you have figures like Christopher Caldwell, and then others, you know, even further to the right about you know I'm I'm vaguely aware of them, and 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 they are they are speaking in the apocalyptic terms that one you know would need to speak to talk about dismantling this thing. There may be a more reformist approach. I, I, I did. I did, though, at one point tweet. You know, we we uh, the, the uh, I, I forgot what I called it, but you know, the messaging apparatus cannot be reformed, right? It it must be abolished, right? And and so I think we do have to speak uh, in terms as a moral horizon, not necessarily in much the same way that other abolitionists speak of a moral horizon. Uh, abolition is is actually right, like is yeah. a thing that has to be in our hearts, right? Because the uh, because like whatever whatever good that it did, whatever necessity it once served, uh, 
um, we have proceeded to a point where it has long outstripped it. And so I, I like to show examples where the the apparatus ends up cannibalizing itself and cannibalizing the prior subjects of its own concern, um, uh, you know, according to its own self-serving bureaucratic momentum. And that happens all the time. And, and, and so, you know, it, in, in much the same way that the kind of radical feminists who are once a protagonist of this regime are now have to be history's greatest monster because they don't accept the latest iteration of where the regime wants to go. In much the same way that, you know, I wrote a story about, um, you know, a black guy who, who, who a woman with a, uh, an emotional support animal that had an allergic reaction to, you know, and then they ended up kicking the black guy off the plane, right? Because like, Oh, the woman has her right to have an emotional support animal, uh, you know, in spite of the f fact that, like, the whole, whole reason we have these civil rights protections in the first place was to dismantle the Jim Crow regime. So you're kicking a black guy off the plane, right, in deference to, like, a white lady with a dog, uh, you know, who has who is neurasthenic and who got some doctor to write her a letter saying, oh, she needs to she needs to be exempt from the rule that applies to everybody else right because because of her illness right and like that's a kind of reductio ad absurdum that of the the regime always ends up going to and one that like reasonable people for the most part should be able to agree is an excess that we have to roll back but that is extraordinarily difficult to roll back because of the totalizing uh, and, and then also like emotionally blackmailing and abolitionist sentiment that drives this whole area of discourse. And it's like, we should be able to be in a position where reasonable people can deliberate and say no. But when we look at where we already are with so many of these newly manufactured identities, it's clear that like we don't have that capacity. And, and, and so will a kind of return to some degree of political power by a GOP, you know, that manages to pick up, you know, a consistent 40% of the Hispanic vote, will they, they have to understand what they're up against? They have to understand, like, it's not just about winning elections, but about draining the swamp, right? And, and they have to figure out, and they, and they need to have people who have expertise who know how to get control of these bureaucracies and, 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 and cabin them in and sure. abolish them when they can. So sure. that's yeah, that's kind of how I see it. So, so I guess to wrap up, uh, Charles, what's oh, your yeah. recommendation? Oh yeah, yeah. We do um, this little segment. We 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 let you offer some recommendations and a close dots. I first want to say thank you to Wes for doing the show. That was great, uh, insightful as always. Um, yeah, my recommendation this week is an insight into contemporary culture that I consumed that I saw uh, only for the first time. Uh, it's a documentary from 1990 called Paris is Burning. It's about the uh, the bowl movement um, uh, in the the the, the bowl subculture in Harlem and New York in the late 1980s, uh, which is uh, a major scene for uh, Black and Hispanic LGBT people, uh, including drag queens. Uh, but also, it's the origin of voguing. It was really fascinating to move this movie. I mean, you know, it's 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 meant to be showing um, the sort of very particular and Camden subculture, but it's so clear that it's so massively influential today. Much in the, much the same way that rapid hip hop emerged out of like some guys in the Bronx. I think it's the Bronx. Some guys in the Bronx. Some guys in New York City in the 1970s, 1980s. The same thing is true of so much of culture today. Um, so I think it's you know it's it's informative, depending regards of what you think about it. It's, uh, the rest of its message. Aaron, how about you? 
I'm going to recommend a book that Charles, in fact, recommended to me a few months ago, and it's called The Ironies of Affirmative Action by John David Scrutiny. I recommend it because it talks about the sort of legibility idea that we were getting into in this conversation very explicitly in the context of affirmative action policy and says that the reason the federal government pushed this is they just needed kind of concrete uh, metrics related to representation um, to, to show that civil rights bureaucracy was doing something. Um, and it's more generally just a very good history of affirmative action that I think is germane to um, a lot of the debates we're having right now you know, far beyond just college campuses, but in, in all sorts of institutions. Um, so yeah, I think with that, yeah. we will leave it there. Yeah. Um, thanks again to Wesley for joining us. Uh, can, yeah, please. Can we please. plug my Substack? Uh, oh yeah. We uh, again, plug your Substack. So the, 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 the recommendation from both of us, of course, is Wesley Yang's Substack year zero. At Where can they find that? Uh, it's wesleyyang.substack.com. W-E-S-L-E-Y-Y-A-N-G dot com. And I also have a my own podcast that I recently launched. I just did uh, an interview with Casey Johnson, who is the author of a, a book on the Duke uh, lacrosse rape trial, and uh, and then also one on the Title IX system. It's a long conversation, but there's we cover many similar, uh, you know, uh, material that we do here. In, 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 it's quite interesting. It's on an app called Colin, C-A-L-L-I-N. Uh, and, and, um, it's only for iPhones at the moment, but uh, it's a lot like clubhouse. Uh, they're, they're live rooms, but they're all recorded by default. And then they become available for anyone to listen to over time. I so if you're interested, download the app and, uh, follow me on it. Uh, that I will, I, I, I will say that Wesley Substack is one of only two that I actually pay for. So that's a, that's high recommendation coming from me. Thank you to him yet again. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Uh, until next time, uh, if you want, if you have questions, comments, concerns, feedback, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. That sounds right. Um, Wesley's on Twitter too, right? He's like at, yes, Wes Yang. Yeah, W-E-S-Y-A-N-G. Until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. We hope you'll join us again on Institutionalized. Thank you.